Well, amen. That was good. That was, I've never heard that arrangement. That was awesome. Well, Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. I thought the uh, kids were going to steal my message there. They got the quote in the Bible and all, but uh, boy, what a great job they did today. Boy, I'll tell you what, they were, they were belting it out there. And even if they missed a word or two, they were belting it out. I mean to tell you, they were in it today. Boy, they were making it happen. And I like that. I love that. It's funny, you get all those children together, and some of them are so young, and others are a little bit older. They're kind of getting ready to kind of phase out of that age bracket. And so they got a little bit, they can do a little bit more than the little ones, but the little ones, yeah, they kind of give you a little bit of excitement, you know. They, you never know what's going to happen. I was kind of disappointed today. No one raised their dress over their head or anything. Uh, you know, normally there, or some kids will cover their face like that and do, you know what I mean? They must be working with them really good, you know what I mean? Because usually in the past, we've had some interesting things happen. And uh, so, but they did a fabulous job. They looked so sharp and sounded so great. You can be proud of your children, that's for sure. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Again, we're in the Christmas season. And so I'm going to begin a series that I've entitled Born to Die. Born to Die. And so we're going to look at the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we're going to kind of, uh, kind of apply that to you and I. And uh, so, nonetheless, Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made. I'm glad that uh, taxes are nothing new, are they? Uh, We still don't like them today, by the way. But nonetheless, they had them back then too. And this taxing, verse 2, was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, into the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. Interestingly enough, we just had a couple this morning, I heard. I was out on my bus route, found out that they just had a baby this morning. And so kind of interesting, and she, she is the, as it would say here, uh, the, the, it says, let's see, um, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered this morning. So that was kind of interesting. I thought that was great. And so we're very happy for them. Little baby boy. And so it was that while they were there, verse 6, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, And wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Father, we come to you. We just ask, Lord, you'd bless us today. Speak to our hearts in this short time that we have. May we, in this this, this small window of time, have the opportunity to learn about you and your Son. And may we understand the work of your Spirit. And Father, help us to be encouraged and motivated and moved to live our lives in a way, Father, that will reflect our purpose for existing. We love you. We need you. We'll praise you as you work in our hearts. And if there be any that are, have, have yet to receive and accept your son, Jesus, may they do so before they leave today. Well, thank you in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Here again, we have the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, he's born and, and, and when he's born, he's placed in a manger. And, and again, there's all kind of speculation as to exactly what that means. And most have kind of landed on the idea that it was kind of a feeding trough, if you will. It's in a manger, uh, in, a, in a stable. So uh, the idea is, is that it was 
kind of a feeding trough. And there they made it a comfortable place for the Savior. And uh, Mary, of course, uh, being a mom that cared and loved for her child like any mom should, uh, uh, certainly went to great lengths to make sure that baby Jesus was cared for and comfortable. And so there they, we find the baby in a manger. And ultimately, we're going to see that the shepherds uh, will come and, and make a visit. And then uh, down the road uh, a ways, quite a ways, we're going to see that even wise men made their way from the east to see him. Although he was born in a stable, it was clear from prophecy that he was a king. Now again, as a king, one would imagine that his future would be littered with the best of everything that every dream would be fulfilled and every good thing that could possibly happen would grace his life. But, you know, that wasn't the case at all with the Lord Jesus Christ, was it? Man, I mean, he might have been born a king, but he didn't live like a king, really, did he? Not at least in his first coming. We'll, we'll see that ultimately down the road, there's a difference when he returns the second time. Let me tell you that. But when he came the first time, he came and he was born and placed in a manger. And there uh, we will see him and we're going to note that he was wrapped in swaddling clothes here as well. And um, that swaddling clothes is interesting because when it talks about swaddling clothes, we still swaddle children today, don't we? We wrap them tight, or at least that's what we've done for years. Now, maybe they found out after thousands of years that's not good for them. But, but the fact is, is that we would wrap children tight and it'd make them feel safe and secure like they're in the womb. And uh, they would feel comfortable in that situation and safe. And in this case, it wasn't like they just had a blanket or something. Mary had strips of cloth, and those strips of cloth would be wrapped around baby Jesus. And therefore, that strips of cloth would be tightened to make him feel very safe and secure. Now, again, there was another time in in a person's life when sometimes strips of cloth would be used. Now, uh, some will tell you that, and will say, and I've read that, that it's not the same word. Swaddling clothes isn't the same word as burial clothes. But the fact is, is that it was still strips of cloth that would be wrapped around a body so that it could be held close and tight to the spices and stuff that would keep the body preserved in death. And so I do believe, and, with, and I, I am convinced, that there's something unique about these swaddling clothes. I do believe that somehow they foreshadowed Christ, not only his, his birth, but also his death. I suddenly get the idea that, that the Lord might be trying to show us that Jesus Christ was born to die. He was born to die. I think it's important that we never lose sight of that fact in reality. That the Lord Jesus Christ was born to die. That he was born to die for your sin, for my sin. He was born to die so that you and I could live. What a wonderful thing that is. How could Jesus wake up each day with a cross looming in his future? with death laughing in his face? How could he wake up every day facing death, knowing that that's why he came, knowing that that's why he was born, born to die? How could he live a life of victory in spite of that and in light of that? How could he walk every day of his life with death looming and still not allow that to choke the joy and the peace from the depth of his soul? You know, the Bible tells us that he knew his fate. Turn, if you would, over to Mark chapter 10, verse 33. The Lord Jesus Christ understood that he came to die. He realized that one day he would hang upon a cross. At least at this point in his life, he's well aware of that. He's very clear on this. 
Matter of fact, he makes the disciples aware of it. They would like to have thought that he was there to establish his kingdom, of which he did come to do. But because Israel rejected him, because his own people said no to him, because the world said, we don't want you, he went ahead and said, fine, that's okay. And he ultimately turned to the Gentiles. And now here we are in the dispensation of grace, being saved by grace through faith. Yet Jesus Christ is coming again, and he will indeed establish his kingdom. He will sit on the throne of David. He will cause Israel to be elevated, magnified, and exalted as it was prophesied in the Old Testament. God is not done with Israel yet. I don't care what modern theologians have to say. It doesn't matter what any preacher has to say. The Bible teaches us very clearly that we are not Israel as the church, that Israel is still Israel, and God is still going to do something magnificent with that nation. He is their wife, and he will once again remarry them, and they will be elevated again as they were in the Old Testament under the rule and reign of David and Solomon. That's a whole other message. Got on a roll there, didn't I? But anyway, Mark chapter 10, verse 33. Mark chapter 10, verse 33, we see here that his fate was already settled and his end was determined when he says, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem. We go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles, and they shall mock him, and shall scourge him, and shall spit upon him, and shall kill him. Aren't you glad he didn't stop there? And the third day he shall rise again. I don't know about you, that's good news right there. And he did rise again. Unlike any other religious leader in history, Jesus Christ did die, but he rose again. It's under these conditions that, honestly, most of us would be paralyzed with fear. I mean, we would be consumed with grief, we'd be overwhelmed with despair. But no, not Jesus, not Jesus Christ. He looked death square in the face, and yet he lived a victorious life. Jesus was born to die, and yet he lived like no other man has ever lived. Over the course of the next four weeks, we're going to consider four reasons why or just how Jesus Christ could live life the way he did while facing death. How he could live each day knowing that death was all that he had to look forward to and yet live victoriously. We're going to find that those four reasons are expressed in four words. Purpose. Passion, promise, and power. And we'll take a look at each of those attributes along the way over these next few weeks. The fact is, if we really want to be honest, each of us is born to die. With the exception of Jesus Christ returning and us being raptured out, if indeed we know Christ, if indeed we received and accepted Him, we too are destined for death. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 9, 27, and as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. The truth is, each of us has an appointment with death. But you know, death shouldn't be our greatest concern. Our greatest concern should be living. We only have so much time, we might as well focus our attention on living, on the life that God has given us, not on the fact that death will one day find us. This morning, I want to focus on this thought, a life of purpose. 
a life of purpose. Boy, Jesus could face every obstacle. He could endure every heartache. He could even face death because he lived a life with purpose and on purpose. Jesus was driven by purpose. He was directed by purpose. He even delighted in purpose. You know what? You and I are going to face a number of obstacles and a number of difficulties along this journey of life. But you and I can live it victoriously as well. We live it in purpose and by pur- on purpose. Well, I tell you, you're going to face some giants in your life. I know of another character in the Bible who lived his life with purpose and on purpose. Turn, if you would, to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 17. We're going to begin reading in verse 25. We're just going to read through verse 29. One of the more popular characters in the entire Bible. By the way, can I tell you that the Bible's not a storybook? It's a history book. And this David lived. He really lived. He lived and breathed just like you live and breathe. He sat on chairs and he walked on dusty trails. He rode on horses and he did all the things that many of us have done through our lifetime. Obviously, he did a lot more than we did as well. I've never wielded a sword and had to, have, have to uh, kill enemy, so to speak. God spared me that in the military. I didn't have to go off to war. Some of you have. Some of you have experienced exactly what David has in so many ways, more than even I. But he was real, just like you're real, just like you're breathing today. It's like you're seeing today, if indeed you have eyesight. It's like you're hearing, if you can hear. David was a man, just like you are a man or a woman today. He lived. Sometimes we lose sight of that when we consider the Word of God. We read the Bible, and it's almost like it is just simply a story, but it's history, his story. Notice what it says in 1 Samuel 17, 25. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man that has come up? Surely to defy Israel as he come up. And it shall be that the man who killeth him, the king, will enrich him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine and taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him after this manner, saying, so shall it be done to the man that killeth him. And Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why camest thou down hither? With whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart. For thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. And David said, What have I now done? Is there not a cause? Man, Eliab thought he had him all figured out, but I'm going to tell you something. David had fight in him. David looked at the situation and the circumstances, and although it seemed grim, although all the men of Israel, those that were trained in warfare, even even Saul, the king, who was a head taller than the rest, would not face Goliath, even though they were afraid and scared of him, David said, is there not a cause? I have a desire to one day be married. I have a desire to have a family. I look forward to a future and living a long life. But there's something more important. There's a God, and there's a God that is to be defended. I won't let that big guy talk bad about my God. 
He had a cause and he lived on purpose and he lived with a purpose. And his purpose was bigger than his future in his eyes. You know, sometimes we get caught up and we forget why we live and why we exist. We forget the purpose in which we exist. We somehow get the idea that it's all about me and mine. We somehow find, look over the world and we say, if only I can get this and this and this and this, I'll be happy, I'll be content, I'll be fulfilled and satisfied. But I'm going to tell you today, friend, until you figure out God's purpose for your life and the reason for your existence, you will never be fully satisfied. So what is our purpose? At least, especially, especially as believers. I mean, I, I tell you what, I'm going to divert a little bit. Let's go to Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. I just want to show you in general what our purpose is. And then I'm going to look at the Christian today for just a little bit. But notice what the Bible says over here in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Someone says, I don't understand. I, I wonder why was I created? Why, do I, why do, did God give me life at all? Or, or what's my purpose for existing? Well, there is a creator. There is a God who created all things. The universe, the heavens, the stars, the, the moons, all of the planets. And he created the earth and everything in it. Notice what our purpose is for existing. In verse 11, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. You want to know why you were created? You want to know why you exist? To please him. And how do we please him? Well, he says, to receive glory and honor. You're to, you're to glorify God. You're to honor God. And you, you, by doing that, you please him. My friend, I don't know what your relationship is with the God of heaven. I don't know if you even have one today, but I'm going to tell you, you haven't found your purpose until you recognize and realize that your real reason for living is to please the God who created you. Boy, you get to please in him, you'll be pleased. Too many times we're looking for something to meet that void in our life, to fulfill that need in our heart, to somehow make us feel like we're important or somebody or accepted or loved. My friend, you'll never know what purpose is till you get to please in him. Amen. That's the real purpose you're being created and exist. This idea that the world has today that it, we were created so that we can enjoy life. We're created so that we can get, I mean, listen, get all the gusto you can. That's what life's all about. It's so funny to me that 30 or 40 years ago, a beer company came up with that, that theme. And you want to know something? It's still a theme that people are, 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 are um, living today. And applying in their life today, I'm just going to get all that I can because I only have so much time to live. And you know what? They're right about that. They only have so much time to live, but you can get everything this world has to offer and still be empty inside. God help us to realize that our first and foremost purpose is to please him. And we do that by glorifying God and honoring God. David... Here he is. Is there not a cause? There's something bigger than my happiness, something bigger than my comfort, something bigger than my ease and, and my life and, and my safety. There's something bigger. There's a reason. There's a cause, isn't there? And if I die on that battlefield, so be it. But I will not stand by. Well, what about you and I today? You living your life with purpose and on purpose?
Well, I tell you what, not only do we learn that generally speaking that our purpose is to please the Lord and, to, and we do that by glorifying and honoring Him, no matter who you are, no matter what your place is, whether you believe in a God or not, let me tell you, that's why you were created. But as believers, He even defines it even more. I'm going to take just a few moments and show you three simple things that we were designed to do, that we are created to do as believers. Reasons why we were even saved. Jesus was born to die. Jesus had a purpose for existing. And he lived his life with that purpose in mind. And every day he saw the cross looming in the future. But he could focus his attention on his purpose. And he didn't allow that to distract him and keep him from serving God the way he ought to. My friend, let me tell you, there are going to be difficult times ahead. And death does await each and every one of us at some point. But we need to focus our attention on the purpose God created us for. And as believers, let me share three of those. Number one, as we said already, to glorify the Father. To glorify the Father. Look, if you would, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. We're going to move very quickly today. We, we have little time. I, I, I tell you what, I, I am more than happy <clears throat> to have given up some time to those children. Didn't they do a fabulous job? Boy, I love that. We got some sweet kids here. You got some good kids. They're wonderful kids. Then again, the Bible says there's none that doeth good. No, not one. But anyway, you have good kids. Some of you already know that, right? I didn't tell you anything you don't know, right? If you only knew my kid at home. No. (laughs) Yeah, I know the feeling. But anyway, notice what it says here. To glorify God, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God and you're not your own? For you're bought with a price. Therefore, because you're bought with a price. Because your body's the temple of the Holy Ghost. Because you're not your own. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. Glorify God in your body and your spirit which are God's. May I say we're to glorify God in triumph. In John chapter 17 verse 1 the Bible says these words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said Father the hour is come glorify thy son that thy son may that my son also may glorify thee Boy, Jesus understood the need to glorify the Father. And someone says, I thought God, Jesus was God. He is. But he took a subservient role in the sense of the Trinity, each having their perspective roles and them working together as one because they were indeed one. And yet he allows himself, while in flesh, to be subservient to God the Father that sat on the throne. You say, explain all that to me. I can't. It's a mystery. It's called the mystery of godliness. But it happened. And the Bible tells us that he wanted to bring glory to the Father. Boy, his example is is to you and I. We too are to bring glory to the Father. See, when God exalts us, it's for the express purpose of glorifying him all the more. Anytime something good happens to you, anytime you're elevated in any way, it's so that you can point people to him and say, he did it. It's all him. Glorify God. That's why. You get a raise at work. You get a promotion at work. It's, hey, God did that. Thank God. He's such a wonderful God. He's so good to me. You get a promotion at school, and maybe you begin on the, uh, maybe you're uh, uh, the, one of the, I, I remember in seventh grade, I was running for, uh, what was that, president of the, uh, seventh, what was it, the, the ninth grade. In the ninth grade, I wanted to be on what, student council. So I ran for president. 
I came in third place, so I was secretary. Can you imagine these guys? They're ninth graders, and they're up there telling, standing behind the, the little lectern, and they're telling everybody, well, if I get in as the president, you're going to get for, hey, there's going to be pop machines in the cafeteria. There's going to be, you know, they're rocking all these promises. I got up there, and I said, if I become the president of the ninth grade student council, I'll do my best, but I can guarantee you, we ain't had pop in all these years. We probably won't now either. These guys are lying to you, but I'll do my best to represent you well. And they didn't believe it anyway. So I ended up being third and I became secretary. I can't tell you how difficult it was taking all them notes during all those things. They said, where's all the notes? I said, well, right there. I did the best I could. But anyway, the fact is, is that whatever the promotion we get, whatever we're doing, we want to glorify God in it, in the triumphs. It's been told that Dr. Bob Jones Sr., he, uh, one of the great evangelists in the early to mid-1900s, is also the founder of Bob Jones University. He was given a tour of his beautiful campus and in his impressive facilities to a, to a group of preachers that had stopped by for a visit. And, and so after the visit, the preachers kind of gathered up, they said their goodbyes, and they headed off. And just, I mean, it wasn't just a moment after they had left that Bob Jones began to wave his arms. I mean, they'd already gotten in the car. They started down the road. He's like, whoa, stop, 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 as he's running down the road trying to get their attention. And after he got their attention, he finally reached the car. And Bob Jones stuck his head in the window and he said, it's all God. He did it all. He said, what's the big deal? They knew that, right? Bob Jones wanted to make sure they knew that. Man, here he is taking them through the facilities and showing them all the wonderful things that, that, that had been taking place. And those men were impressed, but as they left, he thought to himself, I never told him it was God. It was all God. Boy, we need to do that in all of our triumphs. Glorify him. Glorify the Father. But not only in triumph, but also glorify the Father in tragedy. Well, this is a tough one, isn't it? Boy, even in hard times and death, our goal should be to glorify God. In Isaiah chapter 24, verse 15, because of time, let me just read you a few scriptures. The Bible says in Isaiah 24, 15, Wherefore glorify ye the Lord in the fires, even the name of the Lord God of Israel in the isles of the sea. 1 Peter 4, 16, Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Psalm 50, 15, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. John 21, 19, this spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. Speaking of Jesus Christ. Some years ago, a fellow by the name of Kerry Schmidt, a staff member at one time of Lancaster Baptist Church, found himself faced with a potentially life-threatening cancer. Just a young man with a young family. He got this horrible news. His journey would move him to write a book which was entitled Off Script. And in that particular book, he states, quote, Off Script times in God's will are an adventure. They are a trust. They are God times. God himself has ordained the events 
of our lives according to his eternal purpose. And he has chosen you to journey with him in a more intimate way, to experience a richness of closeness with him, to encounter his grace and presence in a way never before experienced, and to walk with him through difficulty that you might bring more glory to his name. He has chosen you to partner with him for eternal good. He reaches out a hand to you, invites you off the pages of your script, and says, come with me. I will be with you. Dr. Charles Parkhurst once made the statement, great faith is exhibited not so much in ability to do as to suffer. In a renowned devotion, Streams in the Desert, Mrs. Kalman writes, we cannot do good to others save at a cost to ourselves and our afflictions are the price we pay for our ability to sympathize. He who would be a helper must first be a sufferer. He who would be a savior must somewhere and somehow have been upon a cross. And we cannot have the highest happiness of life in securing others without tasting the cup which Jesus drank and submitting to the baptism wherewith he was baptized. Not only are we to glorify God in triumph, but we're to glorify God in tragedy. Not only that, but not only are we to glorify the Father but we're to reach the lost. Someone says, well, what's my purpose for existing? Well, to glorify the Father, for sure. And boy, I tell you, if we can keep our focus on that, if we're not allowing ourselves to look too far down the road, instead focusing on the purpose that God has for us as believers, to glorify the Father and to reach the lost, my friend, you'll find that you can be effective for God. Luke chapter 19, 10 speaks of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, when it says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Why did he come? Why did he leave heaven and why did he come to earth? One of those reasons was so that he could seek and to save that which was lost. May I say that today, you and I, before we came to Jesus Christ, were as lost as lost could be. We were Miranda, Miranda, uh, uh, I just lost the word, I had it. We were meandering about in darkness. The Bible says we were, and at that point, we're darkness. But he came so that we could be in the light. Amen. Well, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. I'm so glad that Jesus Christ left heaven. I'm so glad that he came to earth and that he was born and that he was placed even in a manger. That although he was a king, he willingly submitted to the very creation. He allowed himself to suffer, bleed, and die and to hang on Calvary between heaven and earth to pay for our sin, my sin. He came to reach the lost. And I thank God that he did. But then he tells me to do the same. In Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Boy, that's what we're to do. We got these little, little handouts that, that we often refer to as tracts. And on them, it says something about the church. And on the back, it has something to do with the gospel. And uh, we have special ones for the Christmas programs. And on the back, there's a gospel. And we take those. And from time to time, we pass those out. Places we eat and places we go. People we talk to and we hand them out. Man, that's a way of witnessing. That's a way of telling others of Jesus Christ. 
There's other times we have the opportunity to talk to family, friends, and loved ones about what Jesus did for us, how he died on the cross, how he was buried and rose again, and how we placed our personal faith and trust in him. And at that very moment, our sin was washed away, and we were given an eternal reservation in heaven. And what a wonderful story that is. And there are times we even get a chance to knock on a door and meet somebody at a door and begin to tell them of the wonderful good news, the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. Boy, so many ways that we can witness and share the gospel. Not only do we see here our purpose as believers to glorify the Father, to reach the lost, but also to provide an example. To provide an example. Turn to John 13, 15, would you? John 13, 15. In this particular passage, Jesus Christ is speaking. And notice what he says here. John 13, 15. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. What does that mean? Well, let's just put it this way. We're to provide an example like Jesus did. An example of character. I mean, think about Christian character. You're talking about ethics and morality. You're talking about who and what we are behind closed doors. We ought to be an example in our character. We ought to live a life that is, is free from guilt and free from shame. We ought to live a life that could be an open book uh, or a glass house and not be afraid of what others will find. Boy, I tell you what, think about how dangerous of a culture we live in today with phones and, and all of the access to the internet. And, and, and the fact is that everything that hits the internet is out there forever and ever and ever. Young people, do not be deceived. Do not think somehow, some way that what you, what pictures you take or things that you do, oh, I just Snapchat and I do this and I do that and it's immediately erased. Yeah, I guarantee you somebody that's, that's smart enough can figure out how to get it back. And there are people monitoring, monitoring us at all times, whether you'd like to believe it or not. There are, I mean, listen, you can't walk down the street talking about what you're looking forward to buying without just a couple hours later something popping up on your phone. Let me tell you, somebody's listening in. Don't think for a moment that's coincidental. I'm telling you that, the, that, that we live in a day where the Bible says that every idle word will give an account for every idle word. I'm going to tell you right now, we're living in an age where we can see how that could be true. And the fact is today is that we ought to be an example. Whether it's behind closed doors or out in public, we ought to be an example of a, a, in our character. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereby they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. That yes, in the end, when it's all said and done, they're going to have to hang their head in shame, knowing that you lived a life pure and clean and right. Well, we ought to live a life like that in our character. But not only that, in our conduct. We ought to be examples in our conduct, not just in our character, not just when uh, inside the confines of our home or in the confines even of a church, but out there in the world in which we live, our conduct, our outward appearance ought to reflect that of a life lived for Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 4.12 says, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers. 
And people ought to watch you and, and, and observe you at work and at school and, and anywhere you go and say, now that's what a Christian is. That's what a Christian ought to be. Examples of the believers. An example of the believers. This idea that all that God cares about is your heart. Let me tell you, that's the first and most important thing. You've got to get your heart right because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. But my friend, he doesn't want you just to say, well, I've got a relationship with God. How I live isn't really as important as well, how I, how, what my heart is. No, he says to be the example of the believers. Notice what he says. He says, in word, in conversation. That's outward. That's observable. In charity, that's love. In spirit, in faith, in purity. There ought to be a distinct difference between us and the world in which we live today. And it ought to be visible. God wants us to be different inside and outside. And we ought to be an example. Jesus Christ gave us an example and we should do what he's done to us. In our culture, we need to be an example. Boy, our culture needs to see what true Christianity is. The world in which we live needs to recognize that there is a true faith, that the word of God is true and that God is creator and that our life reflects that reality. See, the world and the society we live in needs a standard of righteousness by which to measure itself. Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Well, I'll tell you what. The Savior just kept going. I mean, he was born to die. He knew before, well in advance, that a cross was in his future. He knew that he would suffer, bleed, and die on behalf of mankind. He understood all of that, and yet he realized also that was a purpose, his purpose. You have a purpose. I have a purpose. If you're lost today, I want you to understand your purpose is still to please him. And you know, the first and best way you can do that is by acknowledging him for who he is. God, the creator of the universe. God who put breath in your life and in your body. God who gave you the privilege of living in this world. And you say, this world ain't all that. And my life's been miserable. I want you to know it can be better with him in it. I'm not saying he'll remove all of the consequences of your sinful life. But what I will say is that he will walk with you through the thick, the thick, uh, muck and mire of life. He'll, he'll walk with you in the dark days. He'll walk with you in times when it seems so heavy, the burden's so great you just can't keep going. And he'll bear that burden. He'll lift it off your shoulders and he'll enable you to keep on going. And he'll help you to do it with joy in your life, with peace in your life, and with purpose for existing. As a believer, we have a purpose. It's obvious. And just a couple we mentioned, just a few, to glorify the Father. To be a witness, a testimony, to provide an example. I wonder today, are you living on purpose? Are you living with purpose? Every day do you wake up and you say, you know what, I got a reason to get out of bed today. Do you know what that, is it just to go to work? Is it just to bring home the bacon? Is it just to provide for you and your family? Is it just about you and you and you and you? Or do you think about your purpose in light of Him? May God help us to remember that Jesus Christ could have easily been burdened by the thought of death, but instead He focused on His purpose. 
And as believers, we can't get away from our purpose. As, as creatures created by God, we can't get away from our purpose. And that's to please Him. And we do that by glorifying God and honoring Him. In our life, in our attitude, our actions, in every aspect of our life. Let's wake up every day thinking, you know what? I've got a purpose for existing. And that purpose is Him first and foremost. I want to please Him today. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in Thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. That's what the psalmist said. May we wake up with the same purpose. I believe that's Psalm 1914. I'm going to go look there real quick because if it is, I want you to turn there. Psalm chapter 19, verse 14. Psalm chapter 19, verse 14. Let's look at it real quickly and let's read it together as we close. Let's make this our prayer this week. As we make our way to Christmas, as we consider the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ and that He was born with purpose, may we be able to just capsulize our purpose in this one verse today. Notice verse 14. Let's read it together slowly. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Let's read it again, one more time together. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Will you make that your prayer this week? Will you? And if you don't know for sure heaven's your home and you've never settled your soul's salvation, I want you to know that the Bible says it doesn't matter how sinful you've been. You come to Christ and you bring that sin with you and you tell him, I don't want that sin. It's horrible. It's such a burden to me. I hate my sin. I hate what I've become because of it. I want you in my life, Lord Jesus. And if you'll receive him by faith, if you'll call upon the name of the Lord, the Bible says he'll save your soul, forgive your sin, and give you a reservation in heaven. For we who know him, let's make Psalm 1914 our prayer this week. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for this time we've had together. Bless us now and work in our hearts and lives. We desperately need you. I pray, Lord, if there be any that are without Jesus Christ, that they would take the time to settle that. Lord, sin is such a burden in our life. If we're not careful, the devil can convince us that it's a wonderful thing, but Lord, it's destroying us. It's eating us up from the inside out. Lord, there may be those that are so burdened and so convicted of their sin even now, today, that the Holy Spirit is speaking to and working in their life. May they be willing to bring their sin to Christ, bring themselves to Him, confess that sin and just say, Lord, I hate my sin and I, I, I don't want it in my life. I want you in my life instead and receive and accept Jesus as their Savior. wonder today, is that you? You realize that you're a sinner in need of Christ today? That he is the only way, the truth, and the life? That only Christ can forgive you, save you, and give you a reservation in heaven and walk with you through this life and give you hope, peace, purpose, satisfaction, fulfillment? He's your only hope. 
in just a moment. The music's going to play. And as soon as it does, I want you to step out courageously into the aisle. Make your way right to the front. And there's a, a Don standing there, and he'll have someone of your man show you, take you and show you from the Word of God how you can know for sure heaven's your home, show you some precious promises. If you're a lady, we'll have a lady show you those same promises. Biblical promises. Scriptural promises, not, not Baptist promises. Not community Baptist promises, but biblical ones. Doesn't matter. You don't get saved through a church. You get saved through a Savior, Jesus. So maybe you're a child of God today. How many of you would commit today? Say, you know what? And I'm not going to have you raise hands because I don't want anybody to lie. How many of you would say, preacher, I'm going to make Psalm 1914 my, my prayer this week in my life. Every day I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read that verse. Every day I'm just going to then pray it. After I read it, I'll pray it. Because I want my lips, my life, to bring glory and honor to him. I'm going to make him my purpose this week. If you're going to do that, just in your own heart, tell God you're going to do that. Maybe you even want to come to an altar and solidify it. Either way. Father, we come to you. We thank you, Lord, for this time that we have together. Bless us now and encourage us in your word. Be glorified in our lives. Lord, may we take steps to glorify you. Fulfill our God-given purpose. May we not focus on the bad. May we not focus on the future even. May we focus on today bringing glory to you, honoring you, elevating you. Well, thank you in Christ's name, amen. Let's all stand to our feet, every head bowed, every eye closed. You don't know for sure Evan's your home, won't you come? Come on.